Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Queer Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Cornejo, a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified sex therapist, and co-owner of Psychosocial Therapy, a fully virtual practice where I specialize in working with the queer and BIPOC communities all across California. And I'm so excited about today. I have a very special guest uh, that we, uh, well, both of us met during a panel that we did for another podcast, which the episode has not been released yet so I'm not going to share it yet however you will be hearing more from us later on Uh, but I want to give a big warm welcome to my guest go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work hi Louise hi everyone I'm Chetna Mehta I am a granddaughter of Asian Indian and South African diasporas I'm an immigrant a settler a queer artist and facilitator. I trained as a therapist. I chose to follow a different path to doing this work. And now I work through an organization called Mosaic Eye, which is a private therapeutic practice and arts collective where we are a steward for our core values of peace, love, and freedom on the planet Mm -hmm. through expressive healing arts in introspective community circle. So we work with individuals, a lot of BIPOC, queer folks. Uh, We work with progressive organizations and coalitions to activate our creativity and amplify our compassion in our work and our life. And, And that has been such a joy and pleasure and honor. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I know that we are going to be talking today about decolonizing creativity. And so you that's your work. I'm hearing right now that's a lot of, of the focus that you do is on creativity. So uh, tell me a little bit about what it means to decolonize creativity. Yes. So a really big question and one that is continuing to unfold for me like the layers of an onion part of being a steward for values of peace and freedom, especially and love is really about understanding the barriers to that, understanding the muck in our creative Mm -hmm. rivers. I love the metaphor as a river uh, that comes from Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes in her book, Women Who Run With The Wolves, Mm -hmm. talking about creativity as a river and the pollutants in our river. So the practice of decolonizing Mm. creativity is really clarifying the pollutants in our creative rivers. We are all naturally creative. We we came here to create, to make, to relate, to Mm. innovate, uh, to destruct as well. And so much of the systems that we live in from heteronormativity, patriarchy, white supremacy, right? All of those create so many pollutants in how we relate to ourselves Mm -hmm. as creative beings. And in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of it, decolonizing is questioning and becoming aware of those pollutants that are related to the systems Mm -hmm. that we live in. It's noticing how our own relationship to our creativity comes more from the ways in which creativity has become defined For example, even just looking at the definition of creativity in the dictionary that many of us use, you type in creativity definition in Google and you get a definition that speaks more to ideas, to originality Mm -hmm. and to productions of artistic Mm -hmm. work 
than what it actually means, which is exploration, experimentation, play, uh, innovation, uh, and mm -hmm. just our human capacity to make and alchemize. So inherent to these societally accepted definitions of words like creativity and art is so much colonization, is so much emphasis mm -hmm. on the intellect and what our brains can understand and not necessarily mm -hmm. the creativity that's all around us in nature that is always mm -hmm. present in our bodies, in how our bodies are creating and recreating, destructing and rebirthing itself mm -hmm. at a cellular level. Um, and also how our creativity is impacted by the structures, certainly mm -hmm. of capitalism and, and so much of what we're living in. So a lot of it is questioning, yeah. <laughs> questioning these systems and finding our place in it and what we are actually capable of um, with our creativity. Yeah, and I love that metaphor about the river and also the pollutants, right? Because um, as you were speaking about it, I kept thinking a lot around how for queer folks, or at least in the queer community, there there's such a crucial, um, what is it, a... Uh, um, I guess there's a lot of creativity, right, within the queer community. And oftentimes queer folks tend to be very expressive and also engage in a lot of creating for the sake of identity, right? And as a big part of who they are, who queer people, right, identify as. And a lot of the stuff that I, you were saying around, you know, the, the systems, right, that get in the way or, or pollute, right, like patriarchal systems and, and capitalism, all of these things, oftentimes queer folks tend to be uh, some of the disruptors, right, of a lot of these things and a lot of these systems and really challenging them uh, naturally, right, innately, because that is at least for me, I, I, as a queer person, that's how I feel. Uh, it, it is really in opposition to these things, a resistance. And so, you know, there's so much creativity and oftentimes it's seen uh, very negatively by a lot of other folks in society, right, who are who very much abide by these binary patriarchal capitalistic systems and, and really uphold these values and these internalized ideas about how things should be expressed or created. Uh, and so I'm wondering when you when you were mentioning pollutants uh, and, and also how these systems can keep folks from really seeing creativity, uh, what are your thoughts around how creativity has pretty much been capitalized, right? Where, I mean, there's these expectations of folks to constantly create, right? I mean, even with social media or even as a job and this expectation, right, of constantly creating for the sake of, of you know, making money or uh, doing it to have value versus just creating. Yeah. Well, firstly, I love what you were saying about how, especially within the queer community, creativity is a form of disruption and activism out of survival and thriving and joy and pleasure, which is so needed as humans, right? And that comes from a place of, yes, to some degree, some sense of trauma <laughs> and like oppression, mm -hmm, which is super mm -hmm. real. Some of my, you know, most impactful art has come from places of a felt sense of oppression or isolation or yeah the loneliness of not mm -hmm. meeting or seeing people who look like me or who share my values in mm -hmm. you know my family or what have you some of the most impactful art has come from those places and mm. that is where we are creating for change that is where we're creating for like inner mm -hmm. revolution that then impacts you know our, our outer action or what what happens outside of us Oh, so for mm -hmm. example, you know, when I moved here, I was seven um, and 
we immigrated here to a country where we didn't know anybody. My parents were going through it. They had their own experience of migrating to a new country outside of the one that they were born and raised in. And I found myself alone a lot of the time. And that's when I would be dancing to Celine Dion and Mariah Carey. I would be dressing up. I would be writing poetry. I'd be writing love letters to my grandparents. Like that was just from such a pure place of I have to alchemize, not even a conscious awareness that I have to alchemize these feelings of loneliness and deep, mm -hmm. like life-changing experience and um, depression in a way, you know, as I was feeling mm -hmm. it from family and whatnot. Uh, and that... That I, I'm saying that because it relates to, in my mind, you know, where some of the most beautiful, vibrant queer art comes from, um, even for me today, right? Like the the vibrancy comes from such mud. Like there's such beautiful lotuses that come from such intense mud of um, mm -hmm. being repressed and being judged for just wanting to be authentically oneself. Mm -hmm. And Yes, I think in that space, art is so incredibly healing um, and mm -hmm. transformative and liberating. And yes, to your question. Yeah, that really, in, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, yeah. I just wanted to say that really touched me right now what you said, because I was thinking about my own story and, and the reason why the best parts of my creativity have really bloomed has been because of a lot of those experiences and the need to really show up and be seen and uh you know a lot of the pain right that i know i've carried through many years where i didn't feel like i had that opportunity and i had to really fit into these systems of oppression right to be able to be accepted and to survive um and then letting that um slowly go uh, once i got to a place where survival was no longer the only focus but allowing myself to actually live and so i just what you were saying, I was just like, oh my gosh, yes, you're right. And 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 it's interesting because even though it started and it has come from a lot of trauma, but also a lot of pain and sadness and depression for me as well, it has definitely transformed and has been transforming the more that I've embraced it. And it it, it has become meaningful in so many different ways. And I'm sorry, I just had to say that because I was just like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, that that's, that's so true. I don't think I've actually sat and reflected a lot on my creativity in that way um it, it to me it, it always felt more of as a armor right as something that i had as a weapon as well to be able to exist and show up and not let others keep me in a cage but uh what you just said oh i got a little emotional with hearing it so thank you for for mentioning that about where creativity comes uh some of our you know some of that beautiful creativity comes from for so many of us in the queer community yeah yeah for sure it's like when our creativity is coming from this like natural instinct to survive and thrive, right? And to go beyond the cages that are inflicted or um, imposed on us. That is the most liberatory art. That's like the revolutionary art for ourselves and for those who it touches, who are open to receiving it. When we are create, I, I'll speak for myself, when I am creating within the cage of capitalism and trying to create for money, uh, one, that pressure is super real right? It's super real in the world that we live in, to your question earlier. And I found that when I do that, when I'm moving from a place of like, oh, that scarcity, or I need to make money, it's not the impactful, transformative, liberatory art. It just isn't. Mm. That's that's what I found. Um, and that's unfortunate because it's 
it's like a catch 22, if that's even right. Like I, I fall into this, this tendency or this pressure to make art for money or mm -hmm. to do things for money. And then when I do it and I maybe receive some money or don't receive money either way, it's really painful. It's not satisfying. Uh, it's frustrating. It doesn't feel authentic. Mm -hmm. It actually feels like it doesn't replenish myself. It's not generative. So I end up with less energy after and sort of feeling robbed <laughs> for my authenticity. Mm. Whereas mm -hmm. if I'm showing up to the grit work, it is work, it is effort, it is grit to stay true to my authentic way of creating that is replenishing for my spirit, that is driven by my desire for liberation in myself, mm. in those that my art can be received by, uh, then it is generative, even if sometimes I'm feeling hopeless within the system and the cage of capitalism, which happens, Yeah, you know, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> so No, for sure. Yeah. And, and I definitely have heard many folks, right, that often talk about that, that very same uh, feeling, right, about creating and how creating for... The, the sake of you know financial gain which obviously it, it, you know i think it, it's it's important to note right our creatives also deserve to be compensated and paid and, and valued for their work however it is a very different experience right you mentioned the pressure and how it's very real and i have talked to many creators I actually work with quite a few creatives as a therapist and that is one of the biggest things that comes up is how disingenuous sometimes it can feel to put so much love and or trying to create something but it's not for the sake of creating or for really that expression or for that need to create but rather uh, these pressures and, and um, expectations placed on them and so how that can also affect their their ability to create. And, and you know, many uh, often share their struggles and, and uh, how it impacts their mental health as well, feeling like they're constantly being expected to create for monetary gain. I mean, it's their job, right? And, and, and yet it can feel uninspired or get to a place where there's a lot of depleting of that, that energy, yeah, absolutely. And in, in a lot of the work that I do also with creatives um, to invite folks and make space for folks to use their creativity in a way that is healing and cathartic and liberatory for themselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of what I have mm -hmm. to teach and also remember myself as a creative is that we have to be prepared to nurture and take care of our creativity. Capitalism says our creativity should be taking care of us. It should be paying our bills. If we're going to pursue the arts, it better be making sure that we can maintain some kind of lifestyle, right? But the energy of creativity is absolutely abundant, though it has to be nurtured and it has to not be under some kind of pressure to yeah pay the bills and do all that. So as even as I've been a creative entrepreneur for now six years, I'm coming up on six years in my business where I have to reckon with, okay, how sustainable is this? Do I need to take more care of my creativity now and mm -hmm. find other sources of income that, for example, do not put pressure on my creativity to be that breadwinner, right? So mm -hmm. even six years into my business, I'm, I'm thinking about it like that. When I'm working with folks new in their creative endeavors, pursuits, movements, and businesses, I have to emphasize that we have to be okay with with doing what ne we need to do to take care of our creativity and not be expecting our creativity mm. to be, you know our sugar daddies or sugar mommies um taking care of of us mm -hmm. 
Um, and that allows it to flow more freely and to be in that spirit of thriving and vibrance and joy without again being in that cage of, oh, I need to make this amount of money. Because um, our, our currency of creative energy is so much more than sometimes what like the cash mm -hmm. value is of a contract or a commission, right? It's so much more than that. The process mm -hmm. we have to go through to create a piece of art cannot often be quantified. You know, the mm -hmm. way nowadays, mm -hmm. maybe AI produces a very quick piece of art and that's it. And, you know, there's a quantification for it. We go through an emotional, energetic, mental, spiritual process a lot of times in making a piece of art. And that can't really be quantified. And recognizing the currency and the value of that is a continual decolonizing process to be in relationship mm -hmm. to our process more. Absolutely. And I, I, and everything you just said, oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the whole process, right, of creating is not just something we that's turned on, right? It requires so many different parts of us to really be able to, um, allow the flow right to happen and you mentioned something right now and i was going to ask you too but you, you beat me too and you were mentioning ai right i mean ai has been something that has popped out within the last year i believe and you know we saw a lot of what it can do we were seeing a lot of it replacing different things i even read uh somewhere that animation studios were considering utilizing it more to you know make it easier to create films right instead of paying folks and and all of these other things that are coming up and a lot of creatives were very upset very frustrated with how you know this technology um is also being almost used as a substitute right for for human creativity and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious for you what are your thoughts on ai uh what have you seen what are you, what's your perspective on it yeah, big question. And I trust that my thoughts will continue to evolve as quickly as AI is <laughs> with time. Mm. But right now, <laughs> <laughs> um, right now where I'm at is I just got to spend a week on some beautiful land at Kripalu in Western Mass with a bunch of artists who mm. are committed to creating sacred art. And we spent the time um, resting, swimming in the lake, convening with each other, mm. making, moving, ecstatic dancing. And then it ended with sort of a show where we shared some of the creativity and witnessed some of the creativity that unfolded in that week. And mm. what I'm sharing that for is it made me realize that for me, no matter what, as quickly as AI can produce art, really beautiful art, as easily, effortfully as it could create art that I would never have thought of, perhaps. What AI can't ever take away from me and other artists is our process, is the process yes. that we go through that requires grit and devotion and dedication and um, emotional, energetic um, alchemy in creating mm -hmm. something such that the outcome mm -hmm. actually is not the most magical thing about it. It's what we had to go through mm -hmm. to create that thing that yes, then we can mm -hmm. potentially show, but we are at the mm -hmm. end of that process, someone different than we were at the start of it, perhaps at mm -hmm. a cellular level. Sometimes I feel that way. I feel like a different person mm -hmm. after I've gone through a process of creating something. And that mm -hmm. is something AI can never take away from me so long as I continue to give it to myself. Now, whether the system of capitalism and the system that that is to come in the future with AI being so present will 
allow me to do that <laughs> or mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. will allow me to live a life here while having the time and resources to engage in a process like that i have mm. no idea mm. i do not know but when it comes mm. to my art and my process that is super precious that is something mm -hmm. that a i can't have and doesn't mm -hmm. have and mm -hmm. and um that's what i'm certainly going to be emphasizing and focusing on just the currency that I get. And I'm using the word currency on purpose here. Like there are so many currencies in my art practice. Money is just one of them. Um, <laughs> Self-discovery is one. Spirit, connection, dialogues with my muses in my art, whether they be the birds or the land or mm -hmm. what have you. Uh, that is all currency for me. And again, that alchemy that happens in the process is such big currency for me. Uh, so it is coming back to that process again and again. And in that Kripalu retreat, we were reflecting at the end of the show, like, wow, what an experience that was so connecting to get to see each other's creativity mm -hmm. unfold through the week in culmination. That is so precious. You know, that that is what mm. perhaps art will move into really understanding the preciousness and the value of you know, small performances of humans or going through the process with each other and seeing what comes out mm -hmm. um, and reflecting on what that was like. Maybe that's that's where we'll we'll go as humans towards the process again, because the outcome is going to be so in a way cheapened to some degree because it's produced so quickly by AI. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, 100%, you know, what you said about the process, right, and, and how that is something that AI can't take away. And I completely agree. Uh, you know, I think some of the, the most beautiful works of art, right, are, are usually um, things that really draw out emotions, right, or interpretations about what the artist was really feeling or thinking or their process. And that is something that you're absolutely right. It, it's not just the end result. It's really around what inspired, what really brought out, what really, uh, you know, what energy, right, feelings that were coming into that process and that creativity, uh, which AI, it, it's, it's not, right, it really going through that process. And it's not a person actually engaging in this very spiritual, magical process. And so I, I completely agree. Um, I think it is interesting to, to, see how far technology has gone. And at the same time, I also think that there's so many considerations that we should be taking, uh, especially when it comes to a lot of different uh, processes, right, that that are not uh, that straightforward, right? Another one is therapy. I know for me, I've heard a lot of uh, the therapy space like, oh, is AI going to replace a therapist? And they've done episodes on shows and experiments and all these things, right? And a lot of people often can't tell the difference between what a therapist would say or what AI would say. And yet at the same time, that's not what therapy is, right? It's not really around words. It's a, it's an experience, right? It's a process that two people go through. It's very, very much, um, like you said, the process, not the not not per se, like the the actual outcome. Um, and so it, it is going to be interesting to see how all of these things play out. And yet, I agree 100%. I think that it still um, does not take away from the, the the real value of the creative process of the experience, right, of, of what goes into making these beautiful uh, for creations. So 
uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see, right? I mean, we're already seeing it and, and definitely a lot of debate around it. Now, I know that the title of our of our episode is Decolonizing Creativity. And so I'm, I'm curious, what are ways that you would recommend or things you want to encourage the people listening right now on steps they can take themselves, right? I mean, maybe active or, or steps that they can implement. Uh, I, I know you, you mentioned one already around protecting our creativity and really valuing uh, outside of the capitalistic aspect of it, right? Uh, but what are other tips or, or strategies that you would encourage folks to, to do? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's important to ground this into tangible practice. One thing that I talk a lot about is the inner critic, particularly within the mm. lens of decolonizing creativity, the inner critic internalizes a lot of colonial beliefs and it's a sponge for the systems and the values around us and becomes our internal oppressor. Uh, I've even used the word our internal slave master, depending on our lineage mm. and history. Uh, it's deep, mm -hmm. it's really deep and it's painful because then it becomes that internal um, oppressor that moves us into action that is not in alignment with our true selves. So paying attention to the ways in which the inner critic internalizes systems of patriarchy or capitalism or white supremacy and uses it against us. Um, mm -hmm. I have a podcast called the Creation for Liberation podcast, and um, we talk about the inner critic a lot and tangible practices mm -hmm. to give it space because to reject it, to freeze under it, to fight it is just creating another inner battle, <laughs> right? So there are a lot of resources out there that say, you know, just say no to it or ignore it or like, you know, uh, get rid of the pesky inner critic. The fact is it's yeah. with us, just like our egos. It's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's actually there to protect us. <laughs> and it takes desperate measures to protect us. So it internalizes mm -hmm. a lot of these colonial frameworks and value systems and uses it against us so that we may be safe in these mm -hmm. systems, right? So that we're not disrupting the way that so many of us are, especially in the queer community. Um, and part of our practice is to notice that inner critic and not take it personally, not try to fight it or freeze under it or appease to it, noticing like the the automatic mm -hmm. trauma responses that we have, fight, flight, freeze, appease. We do that internally mm -hmm. too, to the inner attacks, right? And um, noticing that and channeling other voices when we can <laughs> go to tea with our inner critic, right? And not take it on any of it on as truth. It feels oftentimes in the work that I've done with folks as role play, the inner critic gets to a point of like, okay, I don't have anything more to say. I'm here, I'm watching you, let's see what mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. Or it'll just be like, okay, I feel heard and seen, thanks. All right, mm. and then there's spaciousness for our true wisdom to emerge. And that is mm -hmm. that wisdom that will say play, or you are worthy, or do the damn thing, do something that's true to yeah. you, do this, take a nap, right? Um, that's the, the wise voice that that ideally we want to be, we want to be guided by. And that is a process of decolonization, right? Questioning the systems mm -hmm. that we're in that and how it's impacting mm -hmm. us and channeling more intuitive, spiritual, uh, authentic at the very least uh, voices within us, compassionate voices within us that actually take in the body wisdom. 
Yeah, you said that so beautifully. I love it. I'm going to be using that because, you know, it's so funny when I'm working with folks, I talk about uh, this, not not from the same context, but it's very similar, right? You mentioned the inner critic, and that is so beautiful, um, a very beautiful way to really share this uh, with folks who are creatives um, or, or who do creativity, right, for work, uh, especially in really putting it into a, a digestible form. Uh, you know, usually when I talk to folks, I talk to them about a similar aspect, right? Who whose voice are you hearing, right? When you hear these things come up, when these things are showing up for you, when they're keeping you from showing up authentically, whose voice are you hearing? And more so than not, most folks often say, well, it's not mine, right? It's, 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 my parents, yeah. it's a t school teacher, it's a society, it's my boss, whatever. And it all goes back to exactly what you were saying, that these things are not there to, to, harm us intentionally, right? They're a form of protection, right? They're kind of the these things that say, well, if you abide by these things, you will be safe in society. So they are conditioned, right? I mean, these are things that were taught from the get-go uh, because when we're children, and we actually did an episode on the podcast called uh, Inner Child Healing Work, and a lot of the conversation was really around how when we're children, we're not still conditioned in this way, right? We're free thinkers, mm -hmm. we're expressing ourselves, we're curious, we are more in tune to so much and yet as we grow and go along we're told how these you know how we're supposed to behave act express ourselves or not express ourselves mm -hmm. how our emotions are good or bad and all of these other things and so all of that becomes that inner critic right it, it turns into this voice that is constantly trying to keep us safe while at the same time keeping us locked up right it's keeping us so safe that we're not able to really get out of those walls that that they have built um yeah. And, you know, the inner child work it, it, to me has been so crucial because it's really brought up a lot of questions around, well, who, what, where's my voice, right? What do I believe? What do I feel versus what I'm doing to keep myself safe? And I think for queer folks, that's oftentimes something that, um, you know, we go through, especially in, in the, the conversations around how we show up because so much of it is in opposition to what we've been conditioned, right? When all of us have been born and exist within these systems, right? We cannot escape them because that is just the world. And so we continuously do this work where we are going through this process. And so I, I love the way you described it because now I'm thinking like, okay, yeah, this inner critic, right? That has been given to me and, and this voice that I'm often challenging now it's almost like okay well how do i really sit with this and understand that you know this voice has been set in place to protect me and also that this is a, a lot more complex than that right that there are going to be other pieces of myself uh, and challenging this and decolonizing this and unlearning these things uh so that i can show up and and you know take out some of these pollutants right from the river and creativity and to me that's what actually really shifted my life was really letting this part of me, a uh, very vulnerable part, uh, go through a process, right, of unlearning and uh, shifting a lot of those narratives. And it, it's and you're right, it still shows up because it, it's going to be there, right? I mean, it's, it comes up for me all the time, this inner critic, these words, and then sitting with them and really coming to a place of, well, you know, yeah, I, I understand. And also, you know, there is this other part of me that really wants to be seen, that really wants to show up. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a constant. And so I th thank you for describing it that way. I think it, it is a very beautiful way of understanding how uh, a lot of this is there to protect us, keep us safe. And also, um, 
you know, how do we go through that process, right, of challenging and learning uh, and, and embracing and understanding where this comes from? Right. Yeah. To, to fight the fact that the inner critic is just is there at the table um, actually just creates more friction within us. There is a way to let the inner critic be at the table without it being in the leadership seat, like mm -hmm. to rearrange, you know, our seating at our inner table. So it sounds like you also do this work with your folks and that's beautiful. It's so needed just to acknowledge that, yeah, within us, there are these, these various archetypes and parts that are at play mm -hmm. and we have a way to rearrange the table and have our most authentic, compassionate, liberatory parts in the leadership seat. Yeah. When you were talking about yeah. inner child work, I also thought about um, a friend who is a parent to a five-year-old and they were speaking together and his five-year-old was like, um, I guess tapped into all that's happening with climate change and AI and all that. She was mm -hmm. like, what if I was the only person left on the planet? And she just asked mm. that in such a neutral way. <laughs> like there was no catastrophizing or anything, right? It sounds like post-apocalyptic, right? But she was just with such <laughs> curiosity and awe and creativity, like, what would I do if I were the only person on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. And it just reminds me of mm -hmm. the ways in which as adults, I know for me, I would hear that and be like, oh my God, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. That sounds so lonely, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and her dad was very intentional with not projecting his fears on her and to let her have her creativity in that moment, even in a situation that seemed really dire and problematic. So- yeah. You know, even just recognizing all the ways in which adults have projected their fears and catastrophes onto children that have inhibited their creativity. Mm -hmm. We do that. We do that ourselves nowadays as adults, yes. projecting our fears onto like just the awe, wonder, play of our inner children when we, when mm -hmm. our inner children feel safe enough to express that with us. And um, <laughs> it's just a perpetuation of, of those cages. So it's, it's amazing the awe and, and, big-mindedness uh, and visionary yeah. um, energy of children. So, yeah. Absolutely. And you said it best, that, that projection, right? Because I actually worked with children for a really long time as a, a child specialist and also as a therapist. And one of the biggest things that would often come up was how much parents projected onto their children, right? A lot of assumptions about their behavior, a lot of fear and worry around what they would say, a lot of anxiety around their kids' expression, right? I mean, I had parents who would get really upset if their kids, you know, if, they were, if, if there was a boy playing in the kitchen or playing with, you know, a doll. And I had people freak out if kids, you know, were asking questions about touch or about their bodies. Uh, I mean, there was so much and all of this was projection, right? Parents projecting their own trauma, their own experiences. And I would often have to share with them, like, look, these kids, they have just been, they've come into the world. They've been here, what, three, five years. You've been here for like 40 years. you got a lot on your mind that has been given to you. And you're putting this on, on kids that don't understand these things. They are curious. They want to know. And so for me, my approach was really helping parents understand how their own experiences impacted their children, but also, you know, what, what, what did you not get that you want your kids to have? And a lot of it was really, wow, like I really wanted patience. I really wanted someone to explain things to me. And it would make such a shift, something as simple as just bringing it to the forefront, right? That this is what's happening. Uh, you know, maybe th this is something that, uh, uh, 
I mean, you're, that has happened for you, to you, right? In your own experience. And, and there's a fear, there's a worry that this might happen to them. And so it was a lot of really unpacking and processing so many things with parents, right? Never, it was so interesting because they bring in their kids and they were like, oh my gosh, something's going on with them. And it was always really the parents, right? They had had so much mm-hmm. that had happened in their life that they just projected. And so I think that's such an important thing to recognize, right? For any listeners who are parents or even folks, you know, working with children, how um, we often do have a lot of this conditioning and we kind of have this, this, this experience where we we do project right onto behaviors, onto a lot of the things that children do. And, um, you know, speaking about this as well, there's so much, um, I think, that's beautiful about our childhood when we do experience these kinds of, of, different perspectives of the world, right? You were mentioning uh, your friend's kid asking about being the only one in the world left. Uh, I I actually was doing an episode with a, a different fo- person around uh, par- the paranormal, and we were talking about kids and how they're more attuned to the uh, supernatural, right? Or the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. And it was because there's still not a lot of that conditioning and binary and, and very strict beliefs around how things exist in the world, there's curiosity. And so I always thought that was really fascinating, too. Uh, And in my work, you know, observing kids and and working with them, uh, it was just so wonderful to see how un you know conditioned and how uh free their thinking was and the way they created and that was one of my favorite things about working with kids was just getting them to talk to me about what they were making why they were making it and and usually not even in that context right it wasn't even that structured it was just this is how I see the world. These are some of the things that show up for me. And it was so free. And I think that we can definitely learn a lot about tapping into our creativity from children, from observing that that sense of joy, that sense of self-expression that's not defined by these, these rigid structures. Uh, and so thank you for sharing that story. I love that. I love when kids ask the most intense questions and they're intense to us, right? We're like, ah, but to them, it's like, I just wonder what that'd be like. <laughs> Right. It's just play. It reminds me of the story that one of my teachers, Tara Brock, shares about how, um, you know, a five-year-old was in her art class drawing and the teacher comes over and it's like, what are you drawing? And the girl was like, I'm drawing God. And the teacher's like, how do you, mm-hmm. no one knows what God looks like. And she's like, they will in a minute. <laughs> you know, that confidence that um trust i think before we learn as children not to trust ourselves we did trust ourselves Mm -hmm. we trusted what we knew and so much of also decolonizing and liberating our creativity is coming back to that trust like putting it on the page and not listening to that teacher inner critic that's like no one knows what god looks like but really mm-hmm. just going with like, well, this is what's coming out. And this is what it is. God speaking to me in some way, if, if that resonates um, or whatever version of the divine or spirit or guidance or muses, mm-hmm. you know, exists for us. It's coming back to that trust. Yes, 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 absolutely. I love that. Yeah, you know, that that free thinking, free uh, just way of seeing the world, right? That curiosity, which I think is a big part of creativity, right? It's the curiosity around the world around us and finding inspiration. Uh, Chetna, I want to thank you so much for being here again. And I did want to ask if there's any resources. I know you mentioned the podcast. Please share with us the name again. Any any books, any links, any websites, social media, anything you want to 
share with folks. Uh, and just an FYI, everyone, I am going to be sharing the direct links in the description so you'll be able to access them. So don't worry about writing them down or having to go back in the audio. They will be there for you to uh, find them. Thank you so much, Luis, for this conversation and the conversations you're having on this podcast and the work you're doing. Um, really honored to be in community with you. So my website is mosaiciunfolding.com where you can find all of our work. I have the podcast Creation for Liberation podcast on YouTube and all podcast apps. And one resource that I will share is actually called the I Am Devoted Playbook. We published it this year. It is a way to be in playful, celebratory, tangible oh, um, discipline. So it's a reclamation of self-discipline, mm. which in our Western culture has felt very oftentimes controlling and punishing. But discipline is mm. about devotion. It's about masterfulness. Mm. It's about showing up. It's about being a disciple. And we have the I Am Devoted Playbook, which allows us to track. I'll just show you here for anyone who can see it visually. Mm -hmm. um, you can mm -hmm. track your commitments. You can choose your commitments intentionally, knowing why wow. you want to devote yourself to it. This could be related to creativity, to self and community care. You could choose beliefs uh, that encourage you. So the idea of mm -hmm. chosen beliefs in this book comes from Adrienne Marie Brown and some of their work. But you can mm -hmm. choose a chosen belief. You can color and mm -hmm. contemplate with it. It's just a really beautiful and fun way to reparent the inner child, to give mm -hmm. them their gold stars, to mm -hmm. collect data and feedback on your commitments each month or each cycle. And yeah, be creative about it mm -hmm. and in celebration and enjoy with it. And for like people who are Virgos, Virgo rising like me or like earth signs mm -hmm. and love to cross things off lists, this is um, a really fun tool. So that's also on the website. And um, we are on Instagram at Mosaic Eye. Wonderful. Thank you. Y'all check these resources out, especially if you are uh, really exploring your creativity and really focusing on unlearning and, and decolonizing your creativity. These are really, really wonderful resources. So I'm going to be sharing them once again in the description. So make sure you check them out uh, and also listen to Chetna's podcast. I am so excited to actually give the episodes a listen and sharing with my clients because I have a lot of clients who would definitely benefit from this. So Thank you, Chetna, as well, for your work and for putting so much love. And I can already feel, you know, how much dedication you put into this process and uh, and these conversations. I, I hear it in your voice, and uh, it's it's really an honor to have had you on this podcast. And we are going to be again together again in another uh, podcast episode for a different uh, well for a different podcast, and that will be coming out later on. And I will be sharing it where you also talk a lot about uh, some of this this stuff that we talked about today. But um, I'm so excited to share that. So everyone, thank you again for and until next time. <laughs>